Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. The time has come around, and it happens every three months, to have my guest host, Peterson Toscano, sit in for me for Spirit in Action. Always a real treat. Peterson brings you Citizens Climate Radio, and you can see his monthly installations of the program on northernspiritradio.org. But four times a year, he brings together this episode on the Northern Spirit Radio Network across the USA. If you check our website menu under Programs, you'll find other delicacies like Cool Solutions from Northern California and Everyday Nonviolence from Minnesota's Twin Cities and another podcast that Peterson Toscano co-produces with North Carolinian Liam Hooper. As I said, today's host for Spirit in Action is the incredibly talented, devoted, and insightful Peterson Toscano, who is going to connect you today with what was for me an unanticipated and wonderful aspect of climate and environmental activism by folks involved in professional sports. Peterson comes bearing inspirational gifts today. Over to you, Peterson. Thank you, Mark. I'm thrilled to guest host Spirit in Action once again. My guests today are very lively. They each recently appeared on Citizens Climate Radio, and they're not the typical climate action figures. Elena Dunlap is a circus artist in Chicago. She's curious about how she can use her unique set of skills to reach out to audiences about climate change. Elizabeth Dowd in Miami decided to reach the public by dressing up in mermaid drag. She performs the Mermaid Tear Factory. Lou Blaustein in New York City reveals the secret world of eco-athletes. He led me to my first guest, Milwaukee Brewers pitcher Brent Suter. Hey, take me out to the ball game. Take me out with the crowd. Buy me some peanuts and Cracker Jack. I don't care if I never get back. Let me root, root, root for the home team. If they don't win, it's a shame. Cause it's one, two, three strikes, you're out at the old ball game. There is a growing movement among professional athletes. Beyond greening the sports world, more and more champions are using their platforms to urge large-scale responses to climate change. Lou Blaustein, editor at Green Sports Blog, writes about this trend. He has been introducing me to professional athletes who are not afraid to talk about climate change. Athletes like Milwaukee Brewers pitcher Brent Suter. Suter dumps one into left, a base hit. Manny Pena is in, and Suter delivers again. Brent Suter has been in the major leagues playing for the Brewers for three seasons. This left-handed pitcher has a career record of 13-11. That's 13 wins and 11 losses. His career-earned run average is 3.91. He was on his way to his best season in 2018 when it was cut short by an injury. 
After a successful surgery, he's been rehabbing. Brent expects to get back to pitching for the Brewers in late July or early August, just in time for the drive to the playoffs. When you talk to Brent or see clips of him from TV interviews, you will see a silly, playful side to him. He even does voice impressions. TV reporter Delaney Bray of WTMJ in Milwaukee recently tested Brent's skills. You may have seen some of his work on the Brewers' Twitter page. Even Jim Carrey gave him a shout-out for his part in the Dumb and Dumber recreation. But I wanted to see if Suter had real acting chops. Gollum from The Lord of the Rings. <laughs> me wants it. Me needs it. Precious. Oh, my goodness. Forrest Gump from Forrest Gump. Uh, he said we we're going to invest in a fruit company, and so we don't have to worry about money no more. Brent admits he has always had this playful side. Just get away, like, a little too much talking in class or laughing in class or a little too much. I would really like to make beats with my, like, pencil box at the desk and stuff like that. So I'd often uh, have to be told to quiet down, quiet the old drum set down over there. <laughs> and I played sports growing up, always loved sports and singing and chorus and stuff like that. Grew up in the Boy Scouts for a little bit and then uh, uh, not too much. Not too much trouble. And then he saw a movie that changed the way he saw the world. Freshman year in uh, high school, I watched An Inconvenient Truth. just blew my mind. And from then on, it was kind of just on my heart to make this a priority of mine. So I studied environmental science and public policy in college and have this issue, mission critical type of thing for our society and trying to do my part since I've become a baseball player and for the environment. With a scholarship to play baseball at Harvard University, Brent studied environmental science. He learned more about the effects of climate change and how we need to drastically reduce our pollution. At first, that meant making individual lifestyle choices to lower his own personal carbon footprint. At home and on the road playing professional ball, he continues these eco-friendly practices. One thing I do is I compost everything I can uh, food scrap wise at the house, put it into uh, a compost container, put it in a compost pile so that instead of having those food scraps go to the landfill and create all sorts of methane, they decompose in a natural way and become viable soil. That's a big change you can do individually to take your environmental footprint from uh, positive to negative. My wife and I put solar panels on our roof. That's taken out all our electricity needs, which has been awesome. Um, and we're looking for more improvements on our house efficiency. I uh, eat or only organic food, uh, avoid all beef, and avoid animal products when possible. And I uh, use a reusable water bottle uh, instead of any type of plastic water bottle and use this stuff, uh, this Tupperware, this classable Tupperware on the road, rather than using the styrofoam plates and knives that sometimes are, are provided for us. So instead of throwing all that waste away, I just use the Tupperware over and over again and kind of eliminate some waste like that. These individual choices are admirable, but Brent realizes they fall short of what we need to do. We need to change policy and systems. Recently, Brent has found inspiration from Project Drawdown, a book that outlines 100 substantial ways to address climate change. One of the things that really stood out to me was our refrigeration use and how much CO2 could be saved with easy changes in our refrigeration, both the 
policies of how refrigerants are made and also what materials they're made with. Well, we could make a huge, huge change with just a simple change like that. In other sectors, energy and transportation, I think we need to get our vehicle fleet being all electric ASAP because then we can start incorporating renewable energies into the grid and therefore we can be running basically our whole vehicle fleet ideally off of clean energy without any type of gas exhaust contributing to uh, the climate. Brent has begun to use his platform as a professional baseball player to model sustainability. He also made a splash with a new initiative during this year's spring training. Yeah, I just tried to get my teammates to participate as well. I launched this campaign called Strikeout Ways, trying to get all my teammates who signed up one of these Zulu glass water balls, which are so awesome. And the guys bought in and uh, have been using it. And it, it really helped eliminate waste in spring training. And uh, hopefully it continues to do that. 100 out of almost 200 players took a reusable water bottle. Even those who did not take one of Brent's bottles started refilling their plastic bottles instead of grabbing a new one each time. The campaign definitely reduced the amount of single-use plastic bottles they used. So some guys would go to the refillable stations with their plastic bottles before, so it wasn't necessarily every guy was using three or four, but there were definitely a lot of people who would be using three or four in a day easily. We went through 20 huge cases a day, and we got that down to about 10 or 12 by the end of spring. So that was cool to see some progress. Sure, they use less plastic water bottles for one spring training season. But Brent used the successful campaign to connect with his fans. Really, the campaign was more for spreading awareness of outside of ourselves, kind of what our impacts are. I had a lot of fans and people come up to me and be like, wow, I couldn't believe how many bottles I was really going through. And then it started changing my mind on some things. And I started doing this, doing that. And that, that was really the point of it was to kind of start this momentum effect of awareness outside, outside of yourself, awareness about your environmental impact in your life and how you can change that and do other things in your life. And soon enough, uh, a lot of momentum is created. In leveraging his platform, Brent is raising awareness with fans. The Major League Baseball Network posted a short video on Twitter. Brent highlights first steps fans can make. Over 60,000 people have viewed it so far. That's just a start. Brent understands we need to change national energy policy. In a recent interview for the Green Sports Blog, he said, quote, At this point in time, a carbon pricing program and higher initiatives for clean energy are absolutely imperative towards the goal of stabilizing our climate and ensuring a healthy and viable future for our planet. He then goes on to speak about specific legislation he supports. Quote, the Energy Innovation and Carbon Dividend Act would not only help achieve these goals, but would give the funds raised back to the people, save countless lives and create millions of jobs. A green revolution needs to happen fast, and this law, if passed, will play a vital role in helping solve the most important problem of our lives. Within Major League Baseball, Brent recognizes that significant changes are already happening. MLB diverted 20,000 tons of waste from landfills into compost piles and recyclables, so there, there's definitely some progress going on. A lot of teams are switching over to the LED lights, which are more environmentally friendly, less energy intensive. A lot of teams are switching to solar panels. There's several teams using solar panels for energy. There's several teams using their own gardens for energy. I think the Nationals are going all compost for their concession containers and for 
having compost piles throughout the stadium this year. So that's really awesome to see. And my hope and goal and their hope and goal is that all teams would be solar panels soon. All teams would have LED lights. All teams would be composting and divert as much waste as we can and lessen in that footprint as much as we can. So that, that'd be the major goal. But this is just a start. Who knows what we could do next? Maybe add environmental events and cleanups into the normal baseball events would be great. Any kind of gardening together, tree planting. Because at this point, humanity, we need to really not just limit what we do, but change our land use and go reforest of forest areas, meaning like plant trees where there haven't been trees before or forest before. A lot of, a lot of good changes could be used with MLB, but there's already some momentum going. There is a lot of momentum. Still, it can be risky for a professional athlete to take a stand on an issue like climate change. It has become polarizing and politicized. Yeah, I really don't understand how our country has politicized it so much. I feel it's just such an important issue and it's such a kind of really obvious, straightforward issue. Like we are living in an unsustainable way. This can't see our society living like this for hundreds, nonetheless thousands of years. We need to get back in balance with nature. So we, we got some work to do. Lou Blaustein from Green Sports Blog will join us next month to share more about what is happening in the sports world. Lou speaks about the urgency to act on climate. Mike Trout of the Anaheim Angels, best player in baseball, he recently signed a $400 plus million 12-year contract extension. 12 years is also what the IPCC said is the time frame that humanity has to reduce our carbon footprint by 45%. Basically, Mike Trout's contract. We need to let fans know this and know that what the teams are, know what the teams that they love are doing and show them how they can do that, something similar on their own and to engage their friends to do it because we need to get the masses of people who follow sports, and that's the power of sports, right? 65 to 70% of humans follow sports to engage on positive climate action, positive environmental action. And that is where we are now. And the thing is, we only have the length of Mike Trout's contract. So we better get going. Want to keep up with Brent Suter, his career, and climate efforts? You can follow him on Twitter, at Bruter24. That's B-R-U-T-E-R-24, at Bruter24. To learn more about what is happening with climate change in the sports world, visit greensportsblog.com. In our show notes, I have links to articles, videos, and more. You can even see Brent doing his amazing voice impressions. Just visit our blog. Go to citizensclimatelobby.org slash blog. That's citizensclimatelobby.org slash blog. Now it is time for the art house. Eliana Dunlap has an unconventional job. In fact, she finds it challenging when people ask, what exactly do you do? I'll often tell people that I'm a circus artist. 
Sometimes I'll say acrobat instead because people seem to understand that a little bit more <laughs> than circus artists. They have somehow have more of a reference for that. I'll see how they react. Sometimes people get very confused. <laughs> Basically, Eliana does circus, and she has a lot of fun doing it. I see circus as really rooted in play. I mean, if you think about a lot of what we're doing, it's like kind of silly and stupid. <laughs> you know, like we're like. We're gonna make really big human pyramids, or like we're gonna see how many objects we can throw in the air. Like I'm gonna do this really weird and specific thing, and I'm gonna work really hard to be able to do it. And in a lot of ways, there's like no point to that. <laughs> you know, being like I'm gonna spend years to learn how to like stand on one foot on someone's head while spinning objects around my arms. You're like, okay. So I think a lot of it is rooted in play, and I think you know if you're playing, there's I think a bit of an inherent whimsy to that. And I think circus is also just fun. You know, I think that's something. It's nowadays you certainly see circus that is more serious. You know, if you look at the tradition of circus, there's a lot of just fun to it. Part of it is trying to bring you to a place that is sort of magical and different and weird. And I think that's probably where that whimsy stems from. In a moment, you will hear how Eliana is connecting her circus work to climate change. But first. How do you even become a circus artist? It's actually almost quite hard to become a circus artist without going to circus school first, or to have been born into a family. So that's been interesting. There's a lot of people that have been talking about like to like how do we open up other pathways to uh, becoming a circus artist. Eliana was not born into a circus family. She went to circus school in Quebec. Her circus skill set is very impressive. Um, well, I have my what I would call my primary discipline, which is what I was my primary discipline in school,、um, which is German wheel, which looks like a ladder rolled into a circle and you roll around in it, and that's what I could most easily perform as a solo act, and it's probably what I have the highest skill level in. And then I also have kind of pretty much everything else I I can do. I sort of have like categories of things. So aerial work on my On my list of skills, I have acrobatics, group acrobatics, juggling, and then I also have like other categories. Like I have some dance on there, music. These days, contemporary circus it borrows from a lot of other types of art forms, like dance and theater. So it's really common to see other types of performance skills on a circus resume. Have you ever heard of the German wheel before? I hadn't, but I've spent an hour or more watching German wheel YouTube videos. It's a lot like a human in an unmoored hamster wheel. I don't know. It's like a big rolling jungle gym. I just think it's you know it's really fun to do, and there's something about the rhythm that I find really appealing. It kind of like if you work with the rhythm of it, you sort of like float across the floor, and it's very satisfying. <laughs> After school, Eliana did circus in unconventional spaces. She performed at the DC Fringe Festival in a piece called "Kick Before You Drown." It was actually pretty interesting. It looked a lot at like intimacy and the lengths people go to for intimacy. Then she toured for a year with the musical Pippin, the Broadway play set in a circus. The cast included seven acrobats. In January, she finished nearly five months performing in Germany. But as Eliana does acrobatics, juggling, and German wheeling. Something tugs at her. She feels the need to do something to address climate change. 
As a young adult, she read Daniel Quinn's book, Ishmael. What's really interesting about it is the way it's structured. It's a dialogue between a teacher and a student, and then a teacher is a gorilla, <laughs> and the student is some guy that saw the gorilla's advertisement in the newspaper looking for a student. <laughs> it's sort of an interesting yeah, perspective on how we ended up where we are, called The Story of Bee and My Ishmael. Anyway, so I was reading that. Um, I was on tour with Pippin, and I, I, I finished it in like three days. I think it's the fastest I've ever read a book. And it suddenly, like, the world looked completely different to me. I really started to think, like, I want to engage more with climate change, with environmental issues, and I need to figure out a way to do that, and I want to do it with circus. And so I started to think about how I could do that. And then I wasn't, like, really sure where to start, because I was like, how do you do that, right? (laughs) I had never really thought about circus as a way of talking about climate change. And so I decided that uh, the way I wanted to start was to just start talking to people that were already doing this. So I started doing a lot of research and trying to find people that were, you know, working on social and environmental justice and, like, political issues through circus. Eliana sees circus as more than a source of entertainment. And she also has important messages to share But speaking about controversial topics does not fit well with traditional circus. Circus falls under the category of the arts. And I think what the arts do kind of inherently is they either confirm or they challenge culture. And so I'm like, I don't really see how you can do anything in the arts in a way that isn't political. Like, I don't think any of that is free of political voice. Even if it's very subtle, I think there's always some sort of political voice to that. There is that thread in other art forms. And I think you don't really see that so much in circus. And I've always kind of wondered why, and I've had some interesting conversations with fellow circus artists about it, and I often get responses like, oh, well, you know, I don't want to isolate my audience, or I don't want to pigeonhole myself, or whatever it is. And all of those, I think, are like totally valid concerns in some ways. Concerned about climate change and rapidly unfolding ecological disasters, Eliana needed to connect with fellow circus doers also concerned. She turned to the world of podcasting. My podcast is called Changing the World and Other Circus-Related Things. Each one is like an interview or conversation with someone who is doing work at the intersection of social and environmental justice and circus or performance in general. In a moment, I'll let you know how you can listen to Eliana's podcast. Eliana is also a founder of the Circus Action Network. It's a collaborative platform for talking about social and environmental engagement in circus work. Through Circus Action Network, they support and learn from each other. But wait, there's more. Eliana is now using her circus skills to connect directly with the public. This summer, she and a friend are performing a new street performance that draws people in for creative conversation about climate change. It's called High Stakes. What's the plant? But the T is in parentheses. (laughs) So it's like, what's the plan? But it's a plant. And it's because it's me, my friend David, and our third character is this plant named Arthur. So it's sort of like the three of us doing this show. It's actually thematically dealing a lot with sustainability and climate change and like, what do we do now, right? So we thought it was sort of like a funny plan, like, what's the plan? But everyone's like, why do you have a plant on stage? (laughs) We're using a lot of juggling, because my friend David is a juggler, a little bit of acrobatics, and we're also bringing in music, some dance, and some theater. So it's kind of interesting for me, because it's a lot of disciplines that I are not at the top of my list of skill set. (laughs) 
And I've also never done street theater before. So it's just been like a lot of new things for me, which has been kind of fun and exciting. Climate change is an issue humans struggle to understand. People feel overwhelmed and don't know how to respond. Eliana looks to circus to explain some aspects of what we are facing with climate change and how we can move forward. I think the fact that so much of circus is about how we deal with high stakes and high risk situations. I mean, climate change is a high stakes situation, right? And so, I mean, that's something we do every day with circus. The way that people cooperate in circus is really interesting. You like bring together all these people from really varied backgrounds and they all work together quite functionally <laughs> to achieve something. I mean, I've certainly worked with people that outside of the circus context that I don't really like, that I don't really get along with, that I disagree with on pretty fundamental things. But then, you know, we'll go into a show and we have to set all of that aside for the sake of safety and for the sake of doing this show. And I basically have to put my life in their hands. I mean, I don't know how much that reads to an audience, but that's been a very interesting and powerful experience for me to see like, actually, yes, like I can dislike this person or not get along with this person in some aspects, but I can also really respect them and trust them in other aspects. You can learn more about Eliana Dunlap at her website, elianadunlap.com. There you will find a page about high stakes, the summer street show she's performing in Chicago with David Schiavone. Check out the video of their circus skills. Juggling and plant care never look so cool. And if you want to follow the Circus Action Network, check out their Facebook page. You can also check out Eliana's podcast, Changing the World, and other circus-related things. Just go to elianadunlap.com. If you have an idea for the art house, feel free to contact me, radio at citizensclimate.org. You are listening to Spirit in Action with me, your guest host, Peter Sintoscano. Stay tuned for the second half of the show. Lou Blaustein of Green Sports Blog says that professional athletes like Brent Suter are just the tip of the iceberg. Lou tells us about the many ways professional sports and athletes are going green and taking on climate change. Then you will meet Elizabeth Dowd, the Miami-based performer who created the Mermaid Tear Factory. This funny and moving one-person show is captivating audiences. She also reveals why she thinks Miami is the city of the future. I'm stepping in here for a moment to remind you that Spirit in Action is a Northern Spirit Radio production website, northernspiritradio.org. For 14 years now, and all of our programs since 2005 are on the site for your listening pleasure, edification, and inspiration, including links to the guests and further information, free to download as well, or connect up via our RSS feeds. And don't forget to post a comment and to rate the programs after you listen. Help others know about the gems and, if you find one, the flops. Honesty is the best policy. There's also a donate button, which is how this full-time work is financed. By you, not by corporations or government, which is how we can be completely free from the limitations of producing radio in these environments. We've got opinions here, and we're willing to listen and learn. 
Again, we depend upon your support. We're shared across the country on some 40 community radio stations, and I want you to support them first. We need their invaluable alternative to the stranglehold that six corporations have on over 90% of our U.S. media. Community radio goes where other stations fear to tread. Dig in your pockets, offer your hands, and help make the local option thrive. And now, we'll get back to you, Peterson. Welcome back to the second half of the show. I am Peterson Toscano, your guest host on Spirit in Action, sharing with you some of my recent guests from Citizens Climate Radio. I want to introduce you to a sports nut who is passionate about taking on climate change. Meet Lou Blaustein. Lou has loved sports since he was a boy growing up in the suburbs of New York City. It was a passion he refused to give up even when he realized he wasn't ever going to become a professional athlete. I wasn't going to make my living doing that. And so I became the geeky kid who like knew all the sports stats. So if you need to know you know, what the, what the lineup of the 1969-70 New York Knicks was, starters and reserves, I'm your guy. Why you would need to know this, I don't know. But this is the type of stuff that sticks in my mind. And so then I went, you know, again, trying for sports casting and then couldn't make a go of it. And so then I went and got my MBA at NYU, thinking I would get into the sports business. And it took a circuitous route after that, but I finally did get into it. After college, Lou was settled in the sports business world in New York City. Then, like many New Yorkers, his life changed dramatically in one day. WNYW here, live coverage here of this amazing picture we're getting from Lower Manhattan. Two planes, one hitting each of the Twin Towers at the World Trade Center. They come by and they say, what happened, what happened? And you've just got to say, something hit the building, and then something hit both buildings. I felt like this was a, the Pearl Harbor of our generation. And I was fortunate that I didn't know anybody in the buildings, but I felt like I had to do something. I just didn't know what that was. Then Tom Friedman in the New York Times wrote a column, Green is the New Red, White, and Blue. And he posited, because we were 4% of the world's population at the time, 25% of the world's energy use, we were fueling insanely the wars we were fighting on terrorism. And it was like the compact fluorescent light bulb, because there were no LEDs at the time, went on above my head. And so I went out and bought a hybrid car. I changed out all my light bulbs and I went almost vegetarian. And that worked for a few months. And then I said, you know what? I got to do this with my work. But what work could Lou do that would promote green energy? I was an ad sales, biz dev, marketing guy. I was not someone you want, for example, to be on your roof putting solar panels on top of it. You don't want me anywhere near the roof. Drawing on his strengths in marketing and business, Lou decided to use the skills he acquired in sports business to promote green technology. I thought there would be a need for someone who could tell and sell green stories. So I went off in 2005 as a consultant, marketing, biz dev, communications, but instead of sports, in the green world. 
Lou couldn't let go of his love of sports, though. He wondered how he could combine that passion for sports with his growing passion to promote clean energy. Four years after he plunged into the world of promoting green solutions, Lou began to make connections to the sports world. What if there's an intersection of green and sports? That would be very cool for me, the marriage of my two passions. And I started poking around and found out there was a group that at that time was only in the Pacific Northwest called the Pacific Northwest Green Sports Alliance. And there were stadium and arena people talking about how to recycle better, et cetera, et cetera. And that mushroomed into the Green Sports Alliance, which now has four or 500 members and all the major sports leagues are in it. And sports greening has become a thing since about the mid 2000s. Lou then started a blog which has become the go-to place to keep track of the growing green sports movement. Later this year, Lou will also launch the Green Sports Pod podcast. While the green sports niche is small, sports are huge globally. Lou believes the sports world can play a huge role in taking on the biggest issue of them all, climate change. Mike Trout of the Anaheim Angels, best player in baseball, he recently signed a $400 plus million 12-year contract extension. 12 years is also what the IPCC said is the time frame that humanity has to reduce our carbon footprint by 45%. Basically, Mike Trout's contract. We need to let fans know this and know what the teams that they love are doing and show them how they can do something similar on their own and to engage their friends to do it. Because we need to get the masses of people who follow sports, and that's the power of sports, right? 65 to 70% of humans follow sports to engage on positive climate action, positive environmental action. And that is where we are now. And the thing is, we only have the length of Mike Trout's contract. So we better get going. For the past 15 years, professional sports has embraced green technologies and practices. Green Sports 1.0 has been ongoing since around 2004-ish, 2005. And what do I mean by that? By that, I mean the greening of the games themselves. So that could include advanced recycling programs at stadiums, uh, composting, back of house, front of house. So, and, and if you go to a Yankees game, uh, I'm in New York City, and you go to a Yankees game, when you're done with your food, there's no trash bin. It's either recycling or composting. So many stadiums, both pro and college, now are what's called zero waste. And to be termed zero waste, that means you divert 90% or more of your waste from landfill and increasing numbers of, of stadiums and also events like marathons and such are getting to zero waste, uh, level or close to, uh, you also have energy efficient lights, LEDs are increasingly becoming the norm. Uh, LEED certified uh, stadiums and arenas, or in Europe, BREAM, which is a British equivalent, uh, again, are becoming, uh, are, are becoming the norm rather than the exception. And so this has been happening. And so almost any new stadium project or arena project that is undertaken now, it's not like, are you going to become LEED? It's, are you going to go for 
silver, gold, or platinum? Which level? Lou now sees a shift to a new, more robust phase. The infancy of Green Sports 2.0, which is engaging fans, because you know we have a massive climate crisis, right? Beyond changing the individual behavior of fans, though, Lou wants a larger response, one that will bring about policy change. He sees sports figures as potential catalysts for bringing about greater awareness, leading to political action. In the same way, Muhammad Ali advocated against the Vietnam War, or in the same way that Billie Jean King advocated for women's rights, and and later on for LGBTQ rights, or going back to Jackie Robinson breaking the color barrier, there needs to be. That eco-athlete moment, or many moments, where athletes who have these trem- tremendous followings can shepherd that those followings to advocate for policy action. Over on greensportsblog.com, you will see that one of the policy actions Lou reports on regularly is carbon fee and dividend. He keeps tabs on sports figures, teams, and organizations who have endorsed the policy. Last month, we featured Milwaukee Brewers pitcher Brent Suter, who publicly announced his endorsement of carbon fee and dividend on the Green Sports blog. He gets it. He comes from the heartland. He sees the problem. He sees ways that athletes can engage on it. We need more Brent Suters, and that is one of my main missions with the blog: is to find more eco athletes and to get them a, a platform. He is great, but he's not the only one. Kevin Anderson, who is right now because he's been injured, is the uh, eighth-ranked men's tennis player in the world. And Dominic Team, as we're talking now, the fourth-ranked men's tennis player in the world, are both very much into the plastic ocean waste issue. And I find that that's a great way to get athletes into the environmental issue. That's an on-ramp to climate. So those two fellows are very uh, into it. Then we have uh, a retired NFL all, uh, Pro Bowl, which is all-star level player, uh, Ovi Muhaley, who played for the Atlanta Falcons and the Baltimore Ravens, who's doing great work. And in fact, he's creating a comic strip with, a, with an environmental uh, superhero as the main character. Brilliant idea. And there are a bunch of others, but Brent is among the best. Lou predicts we will see more and more athletes take on this issue as we experience more and more extreme weather events. J.J. Watt of the Houston Texans, who got the uh, got an ESPY award for his humanitarian relief work in Houston during uh, Hurricane Harvey, you know, athletes down in Puerto Rico. But you're going to be seeing more athletes engaging on climate as these incidents of extreme weather continue to to accelerate the number and the intensity of them. But there are obstacles that keep athletes from talking about issues like climate change. For one, they risk being seen as too political. What is holding the number of eco-athletes back, I think, is less the politics, although it's a factor, no question, but more education. They have a three to four year career average. They got to focus on their sport. If they're going to get involved in a cause, and most do in some way, shape, or form, they want to do something that's fairly simple. 
cancer. You don't have to be a cancer specialist to talk about cancer. You know you're against it. Or access to sports for kids or whatever the causes that athletes take on. Climate change, yes, it's seen as political, but even more so, it's seen as scientific. They feel like they need to know more about it. They're reticent to talk about it. And so there needs to be an effort to educate athletes about how to talk about climate without being an expert. And I think that is totally doable and we'll get more of them and get more of them quickly if when we do this. Since you are listening to this podcast, you are likely someone who is concerned about climate change. You're already engaged in doing something about it. These days, it seems, though, that people still don't want to talk about climate change. I recently spent a weekend at a festival with dozens of speakers, artists, and activists. Almost no one mentioned climate change. It was like I was on another planet, one that isn't warming. Talking about climate change, seeking solutions, this can feel like a hero's journey. At times we feel overwhelmed and outnumbered, like we are the underdogs with all the odds against us. I know I can feel that way, like I am one of a handful of people who care about this issue. But then I meet people like Lou Blaustein and Brent Suter, or indie race car driver Aaron Tillitz, who appeared on episode 18 of this show. I feel hopeful when I chat with professional skier Angel Cullinson, who spoke about climate denial back in episode 5. Angel is part of a group called Protect Our Winters. Along with many fellow winter sports athletes, Angel has been talking to lawmakers about climate change for years. Protect Our Winters was visiting Washington, D.C., it was right before the clean power plan was going through the works and getting approved. So we were meeting with certain key senators and legislators to say, hey, we support this and we support you. Please vote for climate, support the clean power plan. So while we're trying to get in with these different senators, I didn't know who Bernie Sanders was at the time, but we were supposed to meet with him. He was busy and we ran into him in the hall. And he's like, oh, hey guys, how's it going? He was so personable. I was like, this guy's amazing. We asked him what we should do with people whose stance was that climate change wasn't happening. And he had a really interesting response. He was like, everyone in Washington knows that it's a real thing. There's no one that actually thinks that it's not happening. It's all just politics and, you know, different obligations and money. But no one actually believes that it's not happening. And I was like, whoa, that totally changes it for me. There is a growing group of professional athletes taking on climate change. They are reaching out to their fans and followers. They are connecting with people who probably would not accept the same message coming from me, no matter how well I phrase it. Climate communication specialist George Marshall wrote the book, Don't Even Think About It, Why Our Brains Are Wired to Ignore Climate Change. Over and over, he makes this one point. People do not listen to messages. They listen to people who they trust and with whom they identify. That is why I am thrilled when religious leaders, entertainers, and business people open up about climate change. I celebrate whenever I hear conservatives, outdoor sports enthusiasts, and farmers speak out about climate change. I can't reach everyone. But there are people out there who can reach their people. 
I am especially excited about this growing movement of athletes speaking out about climate change. Even though I am not an athlete and do not follow any team myself, I am moved by that classic underdog story. One thing athletes have is this idea of overcoming obstacles, right? What is a great sports movie, but a movie where you're down in the last quarter or in the last inning and then you come back? So sports is uniquely positioned for people to say, hey, we've got these huge existential crisis level problems, but we have solutions and we're athletes. We know how to solve problems and overcome obstacles. And so that's why sports has a tremendous potential power here. I encourage you to check out greensportsblog.com. You can subscribe to it so you get updates to what is happening in the sports world. Later this year, Lou will launch the Green Sports Pod podcast. And there are plenty more ways to connect with Lou and his work. You can follow us on Twitter at Green Sports Blog. And you can friend us on Facebook, facebook.com slash Green Sports Blog. Elizabeth Dowd is a solo performer who plays Siren Jones in the Mermaid Tear Factory. Elizabeth also helps organize Climate Miami. Where artists lead the conversation about climate change and environmental justice. Oftentimes artists are in a situation where we're looking to the science to legitimize our work and the stories we're making that we feel we need to be telling the stories that science is telling so that we can be taken seriously with our artwork. And so I thought, wouldn't it be interesting if artists led the conversation? One of the best ways they can do that is by letting the, the work speak the story. It is important that Climacazi takes place in Miami. Elizabeth sees Miami as the city of the future. It's this portal to the rest of, of the Americas. It's also this really interesting layering of colonial intersections. So it tells the story of the Americas in a way that I think is really poignant. Mixing of different languages and different cultures from all places via immigration. Um, and sometimes there, the, it's immigration through refugeeism, and other times it's migration by choice. So I think that's going to be very, very common in cities all over the world in the future. Um, the mix of languages. Miami is not a city where English is the is the dominant language usually. So you have the situation where the migration has actually had such a linguistic influence that the language of power is not necessarily English anymore. There is another way we can see Miami as a futuristic city, a climate model of cities to come. Very famously, they talk about sea level rise in Miami because I think it's the most dramatic cosmetic thing to point to, but there's this very real situation of saltwater intrusion in the drinking water. And those are, of course, two things that are 
that are happening together. That is going to be happening in so many different cities. We just happen to be on the on the front line right now, but that's going to be happening in places all over. It's, it is happening in New Orleans. It's going to be happening in Boston and just name just name it. It's a city of the future and that it's it's a case study for how urban environments are going to be dealing with these kinds of problems. In addition to the collaborative art Elizabeth does in Miami, she also created a solo show she performs in theaters and in public. This is a project that I've been working on for whew, since 2013, I think. I spend a lot of time in Brazil. It's the second home for me. And one of the things that I was confronted with very near to where I live there is a beach that was completely covered in plastic trash. And this is something many people can relate to because they've probably seen images in the media of these, you know, bays or beaches that are covered in plastic detritus that have been amassed through tidal movement and garbage expulsion from a variety of sources. It's this particularly beautiful beach, but it has this layer of plastic. So I started to collect the plastic and think a lot about how to represent that feeling that I have when I'm on that beach looking at all of this plastic, how to represent that theatrically. What would what story does this tell? How do we create a piece of theater that isn't about lecturing people on recycling or garbage disposal, but that has a protagonist that can speak from the perspective of the sea? I thought about, oh, but maybe I could be a stingray. Maybe we can write this from the perspective of a stingray. Or I'm very interested in octopus intelligence and other other larger sea animals. Elizabeth created and embodies Siren Jones. She's a vigilante mermaid. She's 382 years old. People often confuse her with Ariel of um, The Little Mermaid fame. And she takes offense at this, of course, because she is, she is in fact related to Ariel, who's the little sister that made it good in Hollywood. And she decided to take the road of the lonely activist. And so she's out saving the world while her sister is enjoying, you know, lifestyles of the rich and famous. She's multilingual. She sells her tears as a, you know, kind of a little bit of a side hustle, but what she's realized is that her tears are actually a very effective anecdote to sadness. You give somebody a little bit of their own, of the sickness, and it makes them more resistant. You will hear more from Elizabeth in future shows. Her reflections about art and climate are deep and insightful. She is pushing the boundaries of what art can do to enrich our climate conversations. And like many people speaking out about climate change, the topic of despair and hope comes up in her work and her reflections. One of the things I've discovered in this idea of doing the Mermaid Tear Factory is this idea that people will probably reach a moment where they're going to want to shut down. But if you give them a chance to have a spectrum of emotional responses, including grief, including shock, let them have an opportunity to express despair and anger And then bring them to a place of creative intention or empowered decision-making 
or connection with a community that cares about the same thing. And I almost avoid using the word hope because I feel like hope is like, oh, it's all going to be fine. And people deep down are suspicious of hope because they're afraid they're going to be proven wrong if they have faith in something and it turns out differently. So the Mermaid Tear Factory is also about about the tears, about the fact that we are going to be allowed to mourn losses and talk about those losses, but we're not going to stop there. We're not going to stop there kind of wallowing in our tears per se, but that we're going to be able to say, this is sad, this sucks, this is heartbreaking, that we're losing so much of this beauty, but we're going to look each other in the eye and make a decision that we can do better and that we can figure this out. We can totally figure this out. We're smart. You can learn more about Elizabeth Dowd by visiting the site climakazimiami.org. That is spelled C-L-I-M-A-K-A-Z-E Miami.org. Climakazimiami.org. If you have an idea for the art house, feel free to contact me, radio at citizensclimate.org. Thank you for joining me here at Spirit in Action. You heard excerpts from my monthly program, Citizens Climate Radio. You can find Citizens Climate Radio wherever you hear podcasts. You can also find us at northernspiritradio.org. Citizens Climate Radio is a project of Citizens Climate Education. Learn more at citizensclimateeducation.org. And thank you, Mark Helpsmeet, for giving me yet another opportunity to connect with your listeners. It is a joy to be guest host on Spirit in Action. You're very welcome, Peterson. I hope all of you Spirit in Action listeners enjoyed that and profited from that as much as I did. Peterson Toscano is so amazing. And there is another opportunity to hear Peterson in conjunction with Liam Hooper on their really innovative and intriguing podcast and periodic broadcast here on Spirit in Action, Bible Bash. For Bible Bash, they combine their extensive religious and spiritual knowledge with their special vantage points as gay and as trans, to provide listeners with a perspective that others may well have missed. There will be another full-length Spirit in Action interview. There will be another full-length Spirit in Action episode with Peterson and Liam soon, so stay tuned. In the meantime, I'll be back next week with more riches from those doing world healing work. See you here next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice, with every song. 